Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice, with your host, Marina. Hello, and welcome back to Vice and Easy. As you can see, we've made a few changes around here. I did have very grandiose plans to make different changes for the podcast, but I was like, ah, I'll just tweak it a little bit. I really wanted to do a new logo, a new cover. So you'll see new artwork as well when it pops up in your feed. So I just want to make something like a little brighter that grabbed your attention a little bit more and just gave more of a contrast. So I also want to be making pins. I've been saying this for this will be four seasons of me saying uh, maybe I'll actually get around to that before we end this podcast. Because, yeah, that is actually kind of the sad part is that we are more than halfway done. And that hurts. That's sad. You know, sometimes I really do like struggle to get through some bad episodes, but we're going to be getting through a lot of bad episodes for season four and five. I'm going to try to view this as like a fun soap opera. So I hope that you join me along for the ride. We do have some very interesting episodes in season four and five. Obviously, we're not going to get to the cinematic quality that we had in seasons one and two, but let's just do it. Let's have fun with this. That's the whole point of a recap podcast. You watch, you get to have some laughs along the way and view the episode in a different light. So let's get into it. This week, we are starting season four, episode one, Contempt of Court. Per IMDb, Crockett goes to jail to protect his source when he and Tubbs tackle organized crime. Ooh, we get to talk on this again. I'm so excited, but let's break down the episode. We open up the episode with Crockett and Tubbs barging into quite a nice office building. Not really giving the security guard the time of day because they want to get through because they have their eyes on the prize. They want to take down the one and only Frank Mosca. Go in there with a spoon and you'll be digging out of Ritz from now till Christmas. Well, then you better start right, pal, because we're going in. I came here to get Mosca and that's what I'm going to do. So you better unlock that door or I'm going to kick it in. Now, Frank Mosca, quite a confident, cool, laid back, legitimate businessman. He signals to his lawyer, the guy from Desperately Seeking Susan, to open the door as Crockett and Tubbs come in wave the handcuffs in front of Mosca's face. Ah, he's been through this before. He knows when he'll get out in this next clip. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. All right, all right, hurry up. I want to make bail and get out in time for my racquetball game. Of course he's got a racquetball game at seven, just like every other legitimate businessman. I will say that is definitely quite waspy, of me is that I really do wish I had access to squash courts again. <laughs> Sorry, racquetball squash courts. Really, really, really do miss it. And it's funny, I remember I took lessons when I moved to Los Angeles because like, oh, I was going to get my toes back into it. But then every time that I want to play with somebody, I was working. Just my hours would never connect. And of course, the guy was Australian. <laughs> it's so commonwealth. <laughs> but yes, that is the waspy part of me. I really do miss it because you are in great shape playing squash or racquetball all day. I just don't like the name racquetball. Squash just sounds so much better. I believe the rules are slightly different, but it's basically the same thing. I think the racket itself is slightly different in squash. I think it's like a little bit smaller, more economical. But I digress. Oh, Frank Mosca, I love how dismissive his attitude of this whole thing, because he's just 
passing around candies to his attorneys and people on his team. Then you have his lawyer arguing that he should not be held at bail, that he is just an innocent businessman, just to your own business. What do you mean? Whereas opposing counsel, Carson, I also pointed this out that Dick Wolf does love him, an ADA (laughs) with husky eyes. And I mean like the husky, the dog, like those super light blue eyes. Um, Elizabeth, it's not home. Strom, Bohm, Rome, Elizabeth Rome. Very, very similar look as to this lawyer. And I really also like that she has like this dark, deep, husky voice. Looks a little bit like Christy Alley, but not. Very similar to the character Serena in Law & Order, played by the same actress. Look it up. I'm going to put it as well on Instagram because I was like, oh, Dick Wolf does love a husky ADA with those light colored eyes. (laughs) I love it. Uh, She rightly argues that not only is he facing Rico charges and uh, 40 years, (laughs) so maybe he will be a little bit of a flight risk. Well, the judge, again, really low balls, sets the bail at $1 million, which obviously a man of this stature can post just like that. So naturally that didn't last long. So we cut out of the cold open and we are back at the precinct. It is a new season because Gina and Trudy, wow, they are bringing it. Gina in this white jacket almost dress outfit where Trudy is wearing this very sporty and athletic white tank top. I want to say like a knit white tank top and tight skirt, also white, looking like a million bucks with a great new hairdo. Oh my God. I am. I don't even remember what happened in this scene. Oh, okay. I do remember what happened. In this scene. Now, since we're dealing with Rico cases, we've dealt with this before. I want to say it's give a little, take a little was the Rico. And then the witness, I'm thinking of Glades, but I'm just thinking about the big wig in Glades who didn't say anything. I'm going to look this up. I know exactly what episode I'm talking about because I remember the Rico cat, which is one of my favorite memes where it's, I'm going to post it again. I've, if you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. It's that giant fluffy orange, like really angry looking cat. And the caption is like, this cat looks like he's watching someone testify against him in a Rico trial. Oh my God. So yeah, it's almost like organized crime bosses have a habit of intimidating, paying off or killing witnesses. Hmm. Very interesting. There's actually a case in Canada where an ex-RCMP officer was divulging secrets to people who uh, were being investigated by the police and uh, basically playing both sides. So that is very prescient. So thank you for sending that in, Aubrey, because I was like, that is perfect timing for this episode. Castillo naturally is concerned about not only the witnesses and what could go through with this trial, but we'll give you a little bit more info on to the variables that Vice is going to be dealing with with this trial and why Vice is even involved to begin with. with Moscow will go after witnesses. They'll probably end up uh, trying to intimidate or bribe or even suborn jurors. Yeah, I don't have to tell you, Moscow will try any stunt he can think of to get a mistrial. And every time he succeeds, time passes and witnesses disappear. You're all assigned to justice to make sure that doesn't happen. Won't the jury be sequestered? No, we're expecting too long a trial for that. But they will be anonymous. Under the RICO rules, we can withhold names, employers, everything. Even from Moscow's lawyers. 
Oh, well, I have said this before and I will say it again. That is very scary to even think about being a juror on a case like this. Even if you're anonymous, quote unquote, I would be terrified. Now, at least you could wear a mask, try to like wear, do something with your hair. I would be terrified, terrified, terrified. And they do explain later on the episodes how they try to mitigate any chances of Mosca and his goons following them. But it's, I don't know, man, I hate to say don't snitch because I remember in high school that was a really big thing where people didn't want to snitch because they didn't want to get killed. But violence would continue. And I don't know, man, I personally wouldn't snitch. It's hard to get out of being a juror, though. I have been called to jury duty twice, and I have never even made it to the courthouse. I actually have not received a letter about jury duty in three years, since COVID. It was March 14th, 2020. It was like the 15th, I think, was a Sunday. Yeah, I don't know. So it was March... It was like it was like the Thursday before the world shut down, right? <laughs> so I got into that one. But I remember I had to call and I, I had to call every day and wait to see if I was had to be called downtown. I was like really freaking out because it's one thing I would totally do it if I had a full time job and I had benefits and I would be paid to be on a jury. Totally. But when you're not, no. No, $15 a day doesn't... I think they cover parking and $15 a day. Maybe a snack. I'm like, no, absolutely not. So it sucks. I would be very interested on being on a case. But then things like this make me a little bit more nervous. I don't want to be on a federal RICO case. I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, no, I have to go into witness protection. Also, what I learned... um, I guess I'm just giving up on recapping this episode. Let's just talk about RICO. If you're in the witness protection program, they only give you limited financial support in the U.S. and Canada. I looked at the math in the States and it works out to about eighteen eighty-three an hour that you get supported. So depending on where you're living could actually, again, you know, you usually don't move to a big city on witness protection. Usually you're in like a small podunk town. Um, I just always think of Joe Dirt when Christopher Walken is the janitor and he puts him on TV because I forget what he, I think he like helps him with something. And he's like, no, no, no. <laughs> he has like the thickest Brooklyn accent. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this. I was watching a movie where wasn't really witness protection, but... It was um, of that same thing. And I actually wondered, I'm like, I guess the only witness protection we know of, obviously, Henry Hill from Goodfellas and Saul from Better Call Saul, Saul Goodman. But yeah, I was like, where would I want to be relocated to? And to have to like kind of live a different life completely. I don't know. Not worth it. Not worth it. Sorry. Don't snitch. Just don't just don't say anything. You didn't see anything. Just walk away. <laughs> oh man. Speaking of walking away, after that court date, Mosca's lawyer is enjoying. Kind of looks like a paleta, which is like a, um, a milk-based popsicle. And they talk. Uh, this is just such mafia talk. I can't even. Here's the clip. I always take a walk when I talk business. So- Great Joey Catalia taught me that. <laughs> oh 
my god, that is the most Jersey sentence I've ever heard in my life. Oh my god. So basically, the lawyer explains that he has an uphill battle to fight. Mosca is on tape extorting a guy. This is all on tape. Mosca promises to find the rat, whoever's the leak in his camp. The lawyer wants to put Mosca on the stand. Mosca does not want to be on the stand, naturally. Gives his lawyer a kiss. Is it a kiss of death? Question mark. That's exactly what I put. I was like, if we're really leaning into like the mafia here, how much is it? <laughs> and then we go to a beautiful, very sunny 80s apartment with a white grand piano in the background. Mosca's gonna find one of his guys. He's at either De Palma, like Brian De Palma, or like De La Palma. It is something very stereotypical. It gets even better with the Italian names later on. Um, the seltzer bottle also threw me for a loop. I think I have either a gif or a picture of it. It looks like he's just spraying perfume. He just put he puts whiskey on the rocks. Whoever this De La Palma guy who's hosting Mosca puts the whiskey on the rocks, and then there's like a seltzer bottle, and I was like. I was like, oh, it's seltzer. It took me so long. I was just expected seltzer to be in a bottle. We call it club soda. So I think that's why. I guess seltzer you can make with like ISI, kind of whippets, um, whatever you charge it with that gives it carbonation. Uh, sorry. Wow. I am just not even giving you all a recap this week. I'm sorry. Bye. I'll see. <laughs> so they sit down to talk a little bit more business. Basically, Mosca's trying to find out who this rat is. So he's just kind of testing out his guys to see who might be the weak link. However, Della Palma de Palma claims that he didn't talk. Mosca still grows him a little bit. Ends up shooting him with his goons in the background, which is a great picture, by the way, where you can see that baby grand piano. Shoots him anyway, leaves. Is he the rat? Who knows? Now Mosca is making another visit. He is going to Tommy's Boatyard, which is kind of like a not really well-maintained marina with a blue facade to talk to another guy. However, he lets him know that he's trying to find this rat. I think maybe he thinks that he took care of the rat problem, but he still wants the word out that he's looking for this rat, this snitch. But instead of shooting him, they shake on it, and he leaves. That, that's LOL. Just shakes his hand and leaves. Now we are back in the courtroom. The lawyer, her real name is Meg Foster. In this episode, it's Carson. She's the one with the, the husky eyes. She looks amazing. Some of her outfits do not fly and make her look very matronly. This, chef's kiss. That silk white top looks like a million basque. Now... She and Crockett talk about the informant, whoever is, as they say, the linchpin in this case. They mentioned it earlier at OCB when they were talking to the feds and how important their informant is to this case. And important enough that Crockett would play tackle touch football on the beach while wearing the same suit from court, which is the white striped jacket and kind of like off-white pants 
Okay. So he's talking, he's talking to the snitch himself. He wants the snitch, the informant, to go into witness protection. However, as we've just learned, they're getting paid $80 an hour now. Who knows what they were getting back in the day? And he has a son who's in high school. So Croc is also kind of using that to convince him to get into witness protection. However, this guy's adamant he's not going to do it. It's my kind of guy. You burned it, Jack. Take the deal. You live with Mosca, you die with Mosca. I'm not going in any witness protection program and change our names and hide out in some podunk town for the rest of our lives. We're negotiating athletic scholarships with three different colleges. Terry deserves his shot. I'm going to give it to him. That also does make a lot of sense because if the kid would get pulled into witness protection, have to change his name and all that, would that also ruin his scholarship chances? Because you can't tell, yeah, you change your name, everything, so like your entire history would be wiped out. That would be really tough for the kids, so I understand. So... After he talks with Crockett, Rivers, the snitch, the rat, talks to his son, and he makes it very ominous. He basically tells the son, like, hey, if when any if anything happens, here you go. And the son obviously is, like, a little bit taken aback. His son is kind of like the off-designer version of Benicio Del Toro. It's, like, a very similar look. He does look very familiar, and I recognize him from Born on the Fourth of July, and it seems that he retired quite a bit ago. His last acting credit on IMDb was NYPD Blue. So that's a neat little universe we have with Stephen Bosco. Bosco, it just like, Bochco, it just kind of like pops up with Stephen Bochco from Hill Street Blues comes Miami Vice, and obviously Stephen Bochco went to NYPD Blue. So it's a little universe that we have here. Ah. Oh. One interesting time. Now, let's get back to the court. Back at court, the judge approves the prosecutor's request for anonymous jury, and he revokes Mosca's bail, worried that Mosca could, in fact, likely be a flight risk. Now, this anonymous jury is also very important because they are really trying to protect the lives of the jurors and stop any intimidation or payoffs of either the jury or witnesses. So at least in this way, this is one less variable they have to worry about. Frank Mosca, again, just one-liners all episode. Make sure I get the good sell. I want a 35-inch stereo TV from the den. Lewis, call Giuliano's. Make sure they know where to send the veal cutlets. (laughs) And again... Who can blame him? Don't forget the cannoli. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, who doesn't love a good cannoli? Now, that bail has been revoked. Mosca, again, he will be living the high life. You'll see in a little bit, as you can see by the cover art of this episode. But let's get back to the details of the trial. So, with Rico... It's all about establishing a pattern and identifying members of the family. And what sets RICO charges and a RICO trial apart from just other trials is, from what I can gather with my half-assed research, 
and this is also from the last episode I did, where I actually had the legal minute. You can pin underlings' crimes on the boss, and then you can seize money and property from anyone who could be involved in this organization, prompting them, I don't want to say prompting them, helping persuade them to snitch. So listen, remember that when you hear this terminology that she uses. During this trial, you will hear the term crime family. When you hear the word family, substitute the word business. Because Mosca Enterprises is a criminal business with a well-defined chain of command. (laughs) (laughs) Only it is a secret, sorted business. It has to be. For as we will prove, Frank Mosca's real business is loan sharking, stealing from the unions, and murder. Now, I totally did not write down or be cognizant of the fact that the jury and the courtroom starts laughing during her arguments, and it has to be a face or something that Moscow makes. I'm trying to figure it out. I do have a lot of great pictures of everybody involved in this trial. Uh, but I remember he is like kind of like unwrapping candy and like looks very kind of like whatever nonchalant when she does point at him when she's mentioning crime family. So I think that's it. Also, just please look at all the people involved in this trial. The hair on the guys in the stands, in the courtroom, the jury. There's one woman who has like very stripy highlights and very heavy eyeliner with a white blouse. It is just a hot mess. Now, remember how we opened up season three, where they were pl- they were um, not plotting, but they were basically staking out the operation, the sting operation to catch Liam Neeson. And where his plans might be. And they were tracking him. And they had this clear glass board with the map of Miami on it. So this, they've brought this back. They, uh, But now we're focusing on the courthouse and how we're getting the jurors in and out. I'll let Carson explain. Every day the jury uses a different drop point. Malls, public parking, the metro rail station. But most of guys can't cover everything. Well, let's not forget... They only have to get lucky once. That's why the two-phase system. Every juror gets an escort home. Any tails, and we stop the parade. No tails. He's playing. Yeah, so that spooky music is because there is one of the goons with a sketch of the juror that he just watched drive out of the parking lot. So obviously... They're being tailed, but they're obviously a little bit smarter about it and know how not to get caught. Furthermore, I would think that only the courtroom sketch artist would be allowed to sketch people. And you're not supposed to be able to sketch jurors. If I'm correct, I'm probably not. 
that seems really sketchy. That should not have been allowed to go on. I don't know why the judge didn't notice that or there was nobody else. There was no security guard or bailiff keeping an eye on what's going on in the stands because that is with an anonymous jury. You're letting people sketch members of the jury. Obviously, this is for the plot of the episode. I'm just really poking an an inconsistency here that is very, very annoying. Boy, I really hope somebody got fired for that blunder. Oh, man. And then we cut to Mosca in his cell. We see the silk pillowcases, the sheets, the coffee machine, the rum that he's pouring, (laughs) the dinner that he's eating. And this is all the meanwhile, while his lawyers are on television, stating that he is not receiving any special treatment. However, Mosca is telling his goon he really wants to catch that snitch. We're squeezing the streets dry. See, that's the thing. The feds work just as hard as we do to keep it off the streets. But inside, in here, you hear things. Am I right? I got a couple of things for you to check out. Okay? All right, we are switching gears again. We have Carson and Crockett trying to talk to another witness. This was the guy that not only sat down for a deposition stating that Mosca was extorting him, now he's changing his tune. So remember our other guy who got shot? May have rattled a few cages. Surprise, surprise. Now this guy is singing a totally different tune, and I don't blame him. I was wrong. Ten years ago, he lent me money for my daughter's wedding. And which you are now paying back and have been paying back at 5% a week, and you're going to keep paying it back. Ferrucci, relax. Come on now, settle down here. We can walk you through this. You're going to be okay. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm beginning to. Mr. Ferrucci? Thank you. You gotta understand my position. Go on, get on out of here, Ferrucci, before you change your story again. Oh, wait. Here, thanks for the cannoli. Ah, let's just double down on stereotypes and read off the names of the former witnesses who have now recounted their stories. We have crossed out La Valle, La Valle, La Bolita, Longo, Ellison, McInnes, Terraziciano, Meno, Mano, Lacoste, and now Ferrucci. <laughs> thanks for the cannoli! <laughs> oh, wait. Here, thanks for the cannoli. Okay, get ready for this. We are back in court when our guy, super muscly, <laughs> goo-looking guy, takes off his jacket walks all the way up to the front. You know, there's that little gate at the front. (laughs) Just stands there, stares at the guy who's on the stand, who is basically talking about putting money into a manila envelope and then bringing that manila envelope as part of the evidence. This is where Tubbs is watching. Now... Once we see the guy gets, he, he keeps with the story, but you can see that he obviously is a little bit rattled by the goon just kind of like saddling up there. When they pass the manila envelope to Mosca's lawyer, 
They pretend to drop something on the ground. They pick up another envelope, give it back, put it back on the desk. It starts smoking as Carson, the ADA, is talking. I don't want to say she's an ADA. I think I'm just conflating my law and order women. I want to say she is a prosecutor. Obviously with the state, but whatever. Actually, no, this could be federal. I will look into this. I should have done more research before I did this episode as to what she is. Her name is Meg Foster. She was on Pretty Little Liars, and I'm trying to remember who she was on Pretty Little Liars because she does look familiar. She's also in They Live. Now, the envelope starts smoking, tubs, screams, basically tackles her to the ground. turns out to be a glitter bomb. The judge clearly not having any of this. This is a court of law. These kind of shenanigans have no part in it. Obviously, this is also going to distract everybody. It's now security feels like it's been compromised. It is not a great time. Let's go back and visit Mosca in jail as he is in shirt, tie, robe, smoking a cigarillo on his silk sheet. <laughs> when he gets a visitor. Now, this visitor... This songbird is singing. I read about your trial, Muska. I, I used to work for county. Well, when I worked there, uh, a detective in our unit was tailing a guy from your outfit. A guy named Rivers. Well, this detective good friend of mine suddenly he's uh, off the case seems this guy uh, Rivers was busted over here in Dade and snitched ex-officer criminal this information is very valuable to me as you know I'm a generous man especially to those who do me favors and it is with this that he politely escorts the guy or just basically tells him to get out but very politely he and uh, Briscoe have some things to discuss also Briscoe these are just like the seeds of law and order that I can already see planted like how Sonny Crockett came about as a name from I believe someone in the courtroom on Hill Street Blues Lenny Briscoe from Law and Order thereby was birthed in this episode of Miami Vice Contempt of Court it's all connected love it now let's get back to Bosco smoking a cigarette. I am actually looking forward to season four because I want every episode to live up to this potential. The smoking in this episode is top notched. You know, I know that we were having a little bit of a big gap there once Crockett quit smoking off screen, but like, thank God we got Stanley Tucci here to just bring it back. But this time, Crockett is on the stand. So Crockett claims to have heard about the extortion when he was listening in and he heard the street slang for extortion, which was juice. Okay. So he is further cross-examined and we have the defense lawyer, Mosca's lawyer, I believe it's Schenken, digging in a little bit further. He wants to know how Crockett knew he was going to be there on August 4th and keeps pressing and pressing and pressing. Again, being cross-examined is no fun as Crockett is just about to learn. Detective, have you ever operated recording equipment on 19th Street before August 4th last? Many times. You caught pimps and hookers doing business? And sometimes loan sharks. 
Isn't it a fact, detective, that on August 4th last, you had no interest in pimps and hookers? Counsel, Vice always has interest in pimps and hookers. <laughs> Very funny. Very funny, detective. But uh, as I see here in this news clip dated August 1st, there was a major vice roundup conducted on the evenings of July 28th and 29th. What's the question, counsel? The question, oh, the question, detective, is isn't it a fact that when you went to 19th Street on August 4th, you had no intention of arresting pimps and hookers? You were there because an informant had told you that Frank Mosca was going to be there. Ooh, obviously there is a long, silent pause. Detective, I must direct you to answer the question. We've cleared the courtroom. We've taken all the precautions. You don't have to worry about security. I understand that, Your Honor, but... But, 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 what, Detective? Yes, there was an informant involved. 90% of undercover work involves the information from informants. And in this case, detective, who was yours? Your Honor, counsel's asking the detective to betray a confidence. Oh, that's hardly relevant. It's most certainly relevant to the safety of this informant. Undoubtedly a three-time loser who traded lies about my client for a free hand to Objection. make Objection. Counsel has established no basis for these slanders. Public identification will put the witness's life in danger. Sell dope and run prostitutes while venal law officers like this one look the other way. I know this clip is long, but bear with me because we are getting to some gold. Common decency demands. For once, I agree with the government counsel. Common decency demands that we dismiss this entire indictment, which is nothing but a stew of rancid meat that makes me want to wretch and vomit. Mr. Shaker, both attorneys approach the bench. Now, I could only get a picture and... It's just him screaming with his like face all blurred, basically just pushing all the files off. <laughs> Great scene chewing in this scene. This is exactly what you expect from a defense lawyer. However, the judge doesn't agree with what he's doing and is overacting, but he does agree that Crockett has to name the witness or else he will be held in contempt of court. What does Crockett do? He is not a snitch. Back to jail he goes. Now, we cut to Tubbs, who's frantically trying to hunt down Rivers. Rivers is nowhere to be seen, but his son is. His son, unfortunately, missed all these calls while he was at practice and comes home and these guys have just taken his dad. And Tubbs has no idea what's going on. He leaves. He makes sure that Terry, Rivers' son, is dropped at a friend's house, so he's safe for the time being. When he calls in to OCB and gets the news from Trudy. Alive? So far. I was running this morning's once and warrants. County Sheriff's Office popped him this morning. Possession with intent. Are you kidding? Rivers is no drug dealer. He wouldn't come within a city block of drugs. Maybe, but he's being held at Metro Dade. Mosca set this up. Listen, Trudy. Call Carson and have her get a hold of Judge Delaporte and Spring Rivers now. Ah, so Crockett is being held in jail for not snitching, and now Rivers is in jail 
for snitching, but you can't really hold him on those charges, so that's why these phony drug charges are pressed on him. Now, it gets even sketchier as he's, you know, giving up his belongings, signing in. He basically says to one of the wardens, one of the guards, like, I want my phone call. They reply, I can't hear you. That, like, did send chills in my spine. Because like, that, that is not a good sign at all. Oh, man. But we do have some cheery music by Yellow in the background. Cell 51D Black. Enjoy your stay, Rivers. That is Call It Love by Yellow, which is a... Very interesting song choice. So as Rivers is going to D-block and it's not looking good for him, Tubbs and Carson are cruising down to see De La Ponte, De La Ponte. I think it's De La Ponte. I'm so sorry. Usually I have a better track of the characters' names. De Palma, De La Ponte, it's just like too much, too much in one episode to go to him while he's just enjoying a regular day off with the family to sign for Rivers's release. Carson and Tubbs are basically able to convince him that these are bonus drug charges, that he's at risk, and that he is the linchpin of this case that they had talked about. Like, he is the key witness. And he didn't show up before on the court documents because they didn't think they would need to name him or protect him. Now they have to. Now, when they get back in the car, everything has gone signed. Thankfully, the judge has signed off on it. Tubbs calls in to let Rivers go. They speed right down to the jail to get Rivers. They get there, and through the glass, they again ask for him and ask what the delay is. Crockett, running into some people he meets... uh, a little interesting in jail. It's a lot of covers to keep. Hey, what happened? Did he catch that big, fast boat of yours with some weight on it, maybe? Nah. I was having a little party, and uh, some narc crashed it. Busted me with the lousy two keys. You ready for that? Yeah, well, uh, you showed up at the right time. There might be some fun in the old doghouse tonight. Yeah? What's the buzz, Mickey? What's going down? Some guy got brought in. Guy who snitched on Frank Mosca. Ooh, now that score sounds very, very ominous, and unfortunately, it does prove it to be Crockett knowing exactly who the snitch would be is super concerned, and also you can just tell in his head, like, what would Rivers be doing in jail? What you know, I just saw him a few days ago, and. A little bit later after this conversation, Rivers is escorted by Sonny, and obviously Sonny is shocked. Asks him, and Rivers reply like, oh, it's okay. Rico's downstairs, like Tubbs is downstairs waiting for me. Passes by Crockett's cell, and then in the mirror, in that curved mirror, an inmate kills. I'm assuming it is a stab and choke situation or just a choking situation because you can see his feet raise up off the ground while the guard watches and nobody does anything. 
Crockett just watches his friend and his informant die right before him. Oh, man. Well, Sonny is sprung. I didn't exactly catch why, but I guess if the person you can't name is now dead, I guess that gets you out of contempt of court because now you can name your informant. And this is actually a really sad scene. However, Crockett's pants are so unflattering. It looks like he's wearing a diaper. Please, again, refer to the gallery to see what I mean in the descriptor notes because it is bad. He's talking to Terry. Terry, again, didn't know that Sonny was a cop. He is just really hurt and kind of feels betrayed. And, you know, he knows that his dad died trying to do the right thing and try to bring these charges against Mosca, but... His father's still dead. His father's not going to see him graduate. His father isn't going to see all those sacrifices that he made for his son come to fruition because of this. However, at the end of their conversation, Terry remembers what his father mentioned earlier on the episode, if anything were to happen to him. And it turns out the information, the stuff that he was going to give his son, is all stuff on Mosca. So what do you think, Sonny? Can you get him with this? This is everything we need. Every record of every payment collected or paid to Frank Mosca. Oh, they've indicted the con and the guard responsible for Rivers' murder. We're gonna have any trouble getting this admitted, Alice? No, there won't be any problem with authenticity or relevance. This is one round our friend, Mr. Mosca, is going to lose. And now, in court, the judge actually approves and allows this new evidence to be admitted into the trial, which huge, huge, and would again strengthen the prosecutor's case against Mosca. However, it's at this time, Carson is handed a note. She opens it, she reads it. We have Sunny behind her in a cream ecru, eggshell, want to say cream, sport coat, Looking like a million bucks, to be honest. I don't like the undershirt he's wearing underneath, but just that sport coat, chef's kiss. She reads the note. She asks for the jury to be excused. Turns out, she states on this letter that has come to her attention that juror number seven has received payments. Cut to Vice Carson, the juror, some lawyers outside by the car. Now, who is juror number seven? Remember the guy who got his face sketched by one of the goons and who was being tailed by one of the goons, even though his white tech called and said that he was not being tailed because the goon was waiting in his car looking for the guy to get back to his car. He wasn't being actually physically tailed. Interesting. Well, surprise, surprise. They have found a briefcase full of cash hidden underneath the floor of his trunk. Juror says he's never seen that money before in his life. However, doesn't matter. Still, doesn't look good. Still, looks like the jury's being paid off for receiving payments. Still, could lead to a mistrial. Remember how early in the episode, it's like, all it takes is one? Swytek, you were the one who dropped the ball. I thought we were watching. We were. But not close enough. Oh, man. Well, back to court we go. Now, 
The judge obviously knows what happened, but again, he can't prove it. There's no way to prove otherwise. So because of this, because of the planted briefcase full of cash in the juror's trunk, the judge has to declare a mistrial. And he does let Carson know that she can refile. However, we get Mosca looking green jewelry, thanking God up there, you know, super happy. His goons super happy. Him and his lawyer outside talking to the press. This is another knocked it out of the park quote. Don't bribe people. It's against the law. Oh, man. I would totally have given Stanley Tucci an Emmy for this It is so bang on. I love it. Now, just as Mosca skips down the court steps, solo and free, with his goons behind him and his lawyer still fielding questions from the press, we hear someone yell. It's Terry, who has a gun and wants to avenge his father's death. This brings us back to not only the pilot, with Rico and Calderon, but also to no exit with Bruce Willis and his wife. As they're standing on the steps, Terry's up there, Crockett is trying to reason with him, trying to make it, and I understand where this kid is coming from. His father died, he gave them all this evidence that his father had compiled that would put Moscow away. Still, at the end of the day, the bad guy won. The bad guy got a mistrial. Yes, they might be able to refile charges. They might be able to admit more things into evidence, but usually it's less. It's not looking good, and I understand why Terry's so upset. Crockett, however, is trying to calm him down. My father gave his life for this bastard, and the judge just let him walk? Business as usual, I guess, huh, Sonny? Terry. What does it mean, man? What does it mean? What does it mean? Terry. And I feel the same as you. But this guy is only going to be on the street for as long as it takes for us to get a new trial. Ah, well, I really do empathize with Terry, and I'd be feeling a very similar way if I saw the man who was indirectly responsible for my father's brutal death walking out the courthouse a free man. And yes, charges might be refiled if the prosecution can build a case again. How long will that take? Will he already be living in a country with no extradition laws? Who knows? As we wrap the episode... Good and bad news. Terry fires his gun up in the air. Doesn't hit anybody. Mosca and his goons are okay. Crockett takes a line that I'm like, wait, is that just kind of like your play on uh, Clint Eastwood here? Go ahead, Mosca. Make it easy. So a little fun fact I just learned, I was looking that up, I'm like, it's not from Dirty Harry, where is it from? It's from Sudden Impact. But it turns out that Make My Day actually kind of came about in the movie Vice Squad, which I was very lucky to see. I forget what it was, a double feature, but it was at the New Beverly, I Need a Time to Kill. I think I was like 
forget what it was, but I was just like, this is such a cheesy, wild movie taking place. It was like 1980 Los Angeles Hollywood Boulevard. It was a ton of fun. And that's where Make My Day is credited with being first used on screen later on by like go ahead to make my day by Clint Eastwood. So that was very interesting. That make it easy though, especially because like Croc is like extra raspy at that time. And then that's how we end the episode with a bad guy walking away. And with that, we wrap up the episode. Let's get into fashion. fashion. Now, aside from Frank Mosca, who is basically winning in almost every category. Best Dressed Male, Best Accessories, <laughs> Best Interior Decor, kind of with that jail cell, but I really gave it to the guy that he shot, uh, De-, De La Palma, De Palma, whatever it is. How can you just not be charmed by Stanley Tucci just going to 11 with this role? Now, Best Dressed Woman, first place, obviously Trudy in that white mock turtleneck top with the white skirt and rock hard abs shining through. Second place, we're going to have Carson in the wrap silk top. When they're talking to Fajuli, Fanjuli, the guy who's, I'm not being extorted. I'm just, he lend me some money for my daughter's wedding. Every Italian stereotype you could put in the book was in this episode. <laughs> and then best dress duo. I really like the final shot. Haha, <laughs> wink, wink, of Crockett and Tubbs pulling their guns on Mosca. Looking great. Very similar watches, but different, but, you know, still gold. Crockett's slicked back hair, his puffy suit jacket, sport coat. Tubbs, again, always a little bit more tailored, always a little bit more formal. Just great to see them back. Love it. Now, I'm going to, this is going to be a new category, my lookalike. We got Richard Benevenito. That is not his name. Hold on. What was his name? Richard Panabianco, sorry, white bread. <laughs> Richard white bread. <laughs> uh, kind of like, okay, you couldn't get Benicio del Toro this time because he's already in season three. So we got this other kid just because he's so squinty in this one shot of him. Uh, but you know what? I really liked his super New York accent coming out at the end. <laughs> I was like, I thought you were in Miami. I they were in high school in Miami. <laughs> That's very funny. Just like it, it, this does really just make me think of Joe Dirt. I'm probably going to watch that again tonight with Christopher Walken with like the super thick accent in like rural Louisiana working as a janitor during season witness protection. Oh, man. Very dark, solemn start to season four. But I am so far loving the fashion. Now, music. Like I said, we only had the one contemporary song, which was by Yellow. I did like the Jan Hammer score. I like the spooky, ominous score when River's about to be off in his jail cell. Oh, and then I, without further ado, have the best quote of the episode. But before that, I just want to thank you all as we go into season four for supporting me, for telling your friends about me, for leaving me five-star reviews. For subscribing, you can find me on everything social at Vice and Easy Podcast. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple, on Stitcher, on iHeart, wherever your podcasts. And if I'm not on your podcast platform of choice, let me know. Just contact me in the form. You can find everything on the domain and you can find everything in my link tree. I'm going to leave you with a nice, solid Italian stereotype of this episode. See you next week. Yeah.
Oh, wait. Hey, thanks for the cannoli. Hey, man. Miami Wise is number one new show.